It's always a privilege to be asked to stand in the pulpit and to deliver God's word. And it's an honor to speak to you all, people that are close to me and have been through a lot. And so I pray that my words that come this morning would be faithful to God's words. A long time ago, on a spring day, a little squirrel ran back and forth, storing up winter food. When she gasped, being startled, as squirrels tend to do, and dropped her acorn. Unfazed, she ran off to find another, as squirrels tend to do. Then as the days grew longer, a tiny sprout burst from the ground from the decaying acorn. Fragile, with an uncertain future, shorter than anything else around, surely to be mowed down, stepped on, blown over, fed up on. Yet each year it got a little bigger and a little stronger. Now a sapling in its teen years, strong but not strong enough, just an inch in diameter, could still be snapped off. Each year it reached for the sky, and each year less and less susceptible to harm, and each year it grew mightier and mightier, until one day it was a sturdy oak tree, making acorns of its own, no longer at the whims of the weather, no longer fear of grazing deer. Nothing could harm it now. It was the tallest thing around strong enough to support a treehouse, big enough to protect the squirrels who had long ago forgot about their own little acorn mishap. To look at the oak revealed a fine specimen of beauty, full and lush, perfect as only God can make a tree. However, stepping to the other side exposed a hidden ugliness that side was scraped clean and damaged beyond description. Not a leaf or a branch in sight. Half the oak tree, perfect and full of vision to behold. Half exposed and laid bare an image to despise. Why the disharmony? Why was this tree that was once promising half beauty and half ugly? Jacob, the heir of Isaac and grandson of Abraham, had an encounter with God and was the last man you would think that God would use for his chosen people. And while still in the womb, he fought with his brother, the oldest, red and hairy, and the youngest, clinching his twin brother Esau's heel. Esau means hairy. Quite a kid. The name Jacob means to grasp by the heel or to follow at the heel. The Jewish rabbis say that to grasp someone's heel is to follow closely after them, a surplanter, someone who would take the place of another. Semitic names were given based on the sounds that were heard or the birth event. Jacob was given the name based on the birth omen of his hand, grasping his brother's heel. 
As the boys grew into men, one was wild, one domestic. One day, taking advantage of Esau's short-sightedness and need to immediately satisfy an appetite, Jacob purchased his brother's birthright by offering a delectable meal of lentil stew. He didn't steal it. He bought it. Maybe not fair and square, but it was his. But it was not his fault that his older brother thought so little of it. Scripture says that Esau despised his birthright, but maybe he had forgotten or didn't know that the one who owned the birthright received a double inheritance and had the right to rule as the patriarch of the family over his brothers. Sometimes later, when Isaac was 137 years old, he either didn't know about the birthright changing hands or didn't recognize the transition, the transaction in the first place because he was about to offer one of the specific elements of the birthright, the deathbed blessing to Esau. It could be that maybe without the confirmation of the blessing, any birthright transaction was invalid. But nevertheless, Rachel overheard Esau, or Isaac, talking to Esau and knew she had to do something. Let's not forget, God had told and promised Rebekah that after all, the eldest would serve the youngest. I'm not sure. Well, I'm sure that that got mentioned to Jacob a time or two, and something had to be done. A blessing was as binding as the modern-day contract. See, a blessing was important to everyone then because it included the promise of fertility of the grounds, the farming, supremacy over other nations, mastery over Esau and his progeny. And it was a special promise that those who blessed Jacob would be blessed, and to those who cursed Jacob would be cursed. The blessing was important. Everyone thought so. So dressed in the skin of a goat and taking advantage of his father's dotage and blindness, again standing in the, pla standing in the place of Esau, for his namesake, he received Esau's blessing fulfilling his birth to take the place of someone else. His father cried bitterly in anguish. His brother, half blessed and half cursed, raged filled, revenge bound. Jacob fled. Running for his life, he goes to his uncle Laban's farm, the place where his mother had sent him. He fell head over heels in love with Rachel, from the Greek word Raquel, means the little you, the girl lamb. Cute as a button, adorable, he weeps over her beauty, winning her heart, moved by her, her, his passion for her. 
He bargains for her hand in marriage and agrees to work seven hard years. Each day his heart yearned, but the years passed in a moment because of his great love for her. At the end of the term, he demanded of Laban, give me my wife, I want to sleep with her. And so Laban takes Jacob to Rachel's tent and Jacob goes in. The flap is closed and like in the movies, the scene fades to black. And as the morning sun filled the room, it's Leah, the older sister, the less lovely one. How could that happen? Didn't he peek under the veil? A word to those who are getting married, peek under the veil. Make sure the person's the right one. But see, now it was Jacob who was half-blessed, rage-filled, revenge-bound. It would take seven more brutal years to have Rachel. Leah, rejected, weeps. Two wives, one beautiful, one ugly. In time, he would grow to love them both. However, Jacob is not done. With two wives and two slave girls and 11 kids, Jacob flees during the night, stealing Laban's household idols as a lucky charm. But he is caught between a rock and a hard place. Running from Laban, he has Esau hot on his trail. 400 men strong, terrified, he hatches a plan. He, the plan is to have his wives deliver a gift as a ransom to appease Esau's anger. The Hebrew word here for gift is rake, meaning grace. It is the same word that is used in Leviticus for the cereal offering, a sweetener, a gift, a grace offering, a sweetener was what he was offering. Jacob here is speaking in quasi-sacred terms of his gift. The sacrificial overtones are very strong. He speaks of appeasing his brother. The word here is kafar, meaning to cover or to make atonement. The term is used for the ransom required for some capital crimes. Maybe Jacob senses the deadly anger of his brother. Grace he's offering, a gift, atonement. But he's Jacob, the surplanter. But now he needs someone to take his place. Esau's anger is too great for Jacob to stand before him, so he sends his wives. They bear the gifts, the grace, and intercede on his behalf before Esau. Later, when Jacob, now Israel, speaks to Esau, he says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Jacob describes the blessing as my blessing 
as he tries to return the blessing that he questionably purchased from Esau 20 years ago. The plan is to have his wife offer the gift in the morning, yet but for some reason, during the night, he decides to cross the river and leave his wives and children on the banks there and then cross back over to be alone. Why did he cross at night? Surely, a daytime crossing would be safer. Did he cross back over alone? Nevertheless, alone he is in the dark. And Jacob waits and paces, nerves on edge, wondering if he made the right decisions, deciding and asking, where is God? Out of nowhere, in the dark, Jacob is ambushed, not by Esau, but by a mysterious man. The name is unspeakable and the face is hidden. Nevertheless, Jacob realizes the man is God in the flesh and Jacob wrestles for his life no longer able to run. Martin Luther spoke of this as a proof of Jacob's faith. John Calvin called it a test of his faith. Having wrestled in high school, wrestling is callously honest. It's intimate and it's nasty. Two sweating guys bodies immersed in salty wetness, spit and drool foaming at the mouth, foul breath, grabbing places that guys aren't to grab, faces shoved into places faces aren't to go. Wrestling is honest. Nothing is hidden. There can be no detachment, no apathy. It's direct and relentless. Wrestling with God is intimate and brutally honest. Nothing is hidden when we wrestle with God. All is laid bare. Go in places that one would never touch under normal circumstances. There's no pretense in wrestling. Wrestling with God is nasty. It lays you to bear. Furthermore, you do it alone. There is no tag team in wrestling just you and God. And we don't like to have our faith tested in this manner. We pray to God, do not lead us into trials. We know that we would fail any test given by God. Why would God do that to us? A twist in the plot, though, Jacob out-wrestles God. The Lord touches Jacob's hip, dislocates it, scarring him for life. The pain must have been excruciating. But Jacob hangs on. He has God in the full Nelson and will not let go. He demands a blessing before daybreak, possible because no one can see God's face and live. But notice here, though, in Scripture that he is no longer wants somebody else's blessing. He wants his own blessing. It's a change with him. He is no longer standing in for somebody else. He has been laid bare before God. God cries uncle. Jacob receives his blessing and is renamed Israel, meaning God wrestler, who won. This seems impossible. God is stronger than humans. How? 
Well, God's strength is not a brute force. His strength lies in the power of pure grace. Strength perfected in weakness. Victory through suffering and defeat. It isn't, this is a preview, isn't it, of Jesus' death on the cross? Saving a world through grace that is hell-bound, driven by the powerful, the strong. Jacob went out into the world with someone else's blessing to make a name for himself. Instead, God gave him a new name, gave him his own blessing, and transformed him immediately. To make a a long story shorter, he makes peace with his brother. He makes peace with God. He destroys the idols, builds an altar at Bethel. And instead of taking credit for himself, he gives the credit to God for the goodness that he has received. And finally, he falls in love with Leah. His heart is changed, and he sees her beauty. At the beginning of this sermon, I told you about a little oak tree. What about that oak tree? Both beautiful and ugly. The acorn was dropped next to an old shed where the little oak began to live. Nothing could trample it. It was hidden from view in the protective shadows of the shed, protected from the bitter winds and the driven rain and the harsh sun. All was well with the oak, and it lived its life happily and thankful, except for one thing. As the little oak grew, it fought to become mighty. Its girth increased, and it rubbed up against the shed, scraping that side clean. No branch or leaf could grow. The oak tree's protector, the shed, scarred it, marking it for life. Eventually, the shed was torn down, leaving no evidence that it was ever there, except for the scarred oak tree with nothing around it, as a testimony to its protector, the shed. Both beautiful and ugly. I watched that tree for 20 years grow. Um, And it became a testimony. Now you know the rest of the story. God's transforming work. We are broken and we receive scars, but God uses them for his protective, perfect work. In Christ, we are new creatures. All things pass away. All things become new. We may, this may mean that we, we receive a new name as reflected in the creation. Abram was the exalted father, renamed Abraham, the father of many nations. Simon means to hear, to Peter, the rock on which God, Christ built his church. Saul means the one who is asked for. To Paul, that means humbled. The Japanese have an art form called kintsugi. In America, when we break a vase, we work hard to repair it, to fix it, so the cracks and the broken shards are hidden 
and no one can tell that it was ever broken in the first place. However, the Japanese have an ancient tradition of repairing broken pottery. They do not hide the brokenness. Instead, they fill the cracks with powdered gold, platinum, and silver. Kintsugi pottery has the philosophical view that shattering and restoration are a natural part of a cracked pot's history. It should not be hidden, but highlighted. The brokenness becomes a part of the beauty. The church needs to be transformed. We cannot transform ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit. We are just the clay and God is the potter. We are the works of his hand, made perfect, not through power and might, but beautifully formed by grace poured out. We are broken and restored, called and recalled, fixed and sent out. Israel's transformation is immediate but not complete. Israel still wrestled with God. Sometimes it's Jacob, sometimes it's Israel, back and forth, but always with a limp. Israel, as the chosen nation, continues to struggle with God. Rabbis teach that that name means the constant struggle with God and prevailing. Faith wavers and never goes unquestioned, but to have faith is to wrestle with God. Over and over, we crash against the body and the blood of Jesus. Jesus' body, broken by us and broken for us. The cross and its mercy transforms us, but never to the point that we don't need it anymore. We come to the cross, and we come to the bread and the cup. Sin and forgiveness, resistance and grace. Though reformed, we are ever in need of being reformed. To have faith is to wrestle with God, and if we wrestle with God, we win. The sign that God has touched you may be a limp, a reminder that you have had an encounter with mighty God. Paul had thorns in the side. Jesus had holes in his hands and side. He bled from the pores as he wrestled with God. As you draw closer to Jesus, your protector, you will bear the scars of those encounters. Yet, you will gain by looking more and more like Jesus transformed into his likeness. His scars lived on in his glorified body. So growing next to Jesus in the shadows of his protection is not safe. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes, Aslam is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Who says Susan, I thought he was just a man. Is he quite safe? I'd feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king of kings, I tell you. 
It is not safe to serve Jesus. You may die, and you will get scarred, but it is good to serve Jesus. As you wrestle with God, you risk being scared of being given a new name, but it's written in heaven. Your identity changes and marked. Wrestling is not a lack of faith. For Jacob, it was a a sign of faith, not disbelief. If he had ran away from God, that would be disbelief. Are you willing to bear the marks and the scars of serving Jesus and having him as your protector? So the question rises, and that I asked when I was preparing this, how do you have this encounter with God? What will your scars look like? I can't tell you. Nobody can tell you. God can't be packaged and handed to you. And that's the mystery. Ah, mysteries. The bane of Western Christianity. The torment of PhD students. I can't describe, I can describe the scars you receive, but I can't define them. In scripture, each encounter with God was unique and each scar was unique. Just like God will give you a name written on a stone that only you and he knows, no one else. Eugene Peterson says, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Language is not always precise. It can be ambiguous. Stories are ambiguous, and that's their beauty. It's hard to define our encounter with God with precision, but life is not that way. Being a sinner is not that way. In a mystery, there is room. There is room for response, and there is room to receive. There is room to hear from God that transcends our intellect, the mystery of God. When young, as an engineer, I saw everything as black and white, precise. My slide ruler could solve any problem. At 65 now, life is more ambiguous, nebulous. The answers are less sure, but God gets bigger, and I get smaller. So what is the sign that you have encountered the Almighty God? You walk with a limp. When we encounter God, we are at risk because we may not get what we want, but we'll get what God wants. We win. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. We win, but the prize may be unexpected. It may reveal the ugliness that we have tried to hide. God may not remove the ugliness, but he will line it with gold. The moms and the dads in Texas this past week, whose children were violently and senselessly murdered, taken before they even knew what death was about, cry, where's God? 
the victims of a sexual abuse in a Southern Baptist, seeking to be heard, crying for justice. Where's God? God is with those who bear the scars of their encounter with him. People who limp, people who are both beautiful and ugly, people whose brokenness is not hidden but marked by gold, and this is the mystery. Your limp identifies you as one who has countered the king of kings and one. God is not timid. He is not safe. We don't have to walk on eggshells around him. We wrestle over our fears and our doubts, our disappointments, our frustrations. But that is good. We take him to a broken world that needs to be restored. Jesus grabbed us by our heels and he took our place on the cross and sin was conquered. The cross, the cross is beautiful and ugly. To follow Jesus is to be both beautiful and ugly. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that you are bigger. And your bigness is so great that it becomes a mystery for our little minds. But you know how big you are. And we can rest in the comfort that no matter what happens, it is good. So we ask your words to go out. That I personally would be transformed and everyone else to see your bigness, to see the ugliness and the beauty and to glorify you, Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.